we started teaching on the sacraments. And I didn't know how that would go over because I know the, the background of our momentum moving into the present day. Sometimes when you have a massive background, as any good church should, it's hard to steer new directions because you have a, a velocity and a vector already pushing behind you. Uh, my background in geology allows me to think in terms of glaciology, and you have this massive mountain of ice. Most of the people only see the what is the front or the toe wall of it, and then you don't realize that that thing moves like a river, but it's got the whole mountain of ice behind it, and so it's hard to stop anything at the front because you have the whole mountain of ice pushing that direction. And so when you're trying to introduce new things to a church, you have to be mindful of where it's coming from and what, what can be done to help its current movement or current trajectory. That being said, we started teaching on the sacraments because uh, I hit upon some things uh, and observed some things concerning the sacraments that we are really ignorant of as not Catholic, not liturgical, not what's termed a high church. The term high church just means you're coming from a term, uh, from a place of more liturgy, a priesthood. And that's not been us as charismatics, word of faith. Some of us are recovering Baptists. My Baptist friends call me a recovering Baptist, recovering Methodists, recovering Presbyterians, recovering Pentecostals. I think I'm a recovering charismatic, to be honest. I'm still, it's a 12-step program. I'm still step seven or eight, still recovering from charismaticdom. But one of the things we began to look at two weeks ago when we started teaching on the sacraments was really the veracity, their importance. And I think the thing we probably also saw was that the high churches, that is churches with liturgy, churches with quote-unquote sacraments, they take the things of God perhaps more serious than other churches do. Now, I did say I'm not interested in making us Catholic. I'm not going to wear a collar or a robe unless I'm required to at another place to preach the word. But I think we can learn things from other parts in the body of Christ. They have, they're studying the same scriptures. Now, doctrinal differences arise because we study the same scriptures and come to a different conclusion. And there's a lot of doctrines out there that are considered orthodoxy that I don't personally believe in or agree with because I look at the same scriptures and I land somewhere else in the interpretation. And all that's permissible in Christ because it's orthodoxy. It's looking at the scriptures, trying to honor God with our finite understanding of them. But concerning the sacraments, we as evangelicals, we're also considered Protestants because we are spirit-filled, tongue-talking church. We're considered Pentecostals or charismatics. You can already see how divided the body of Christ is just with our ilk. We really only acknowledge two sacraments and we don't even call them sacraments. And that's because we really are trying to loosen up everything. I, I really fear for the seeker-friendly churches. These are the dressed-down churches. And I'm all for dressing down, just not for the holy house of God. If this is going to be a sanctuary, and this is our Sabbath, and we worship a holy God, this day should be special to us above all other days of the week. And unfortunately, a lot of my fellow preacher friends are hell-bent, in my opinion, to make this day less than any other day in your week. And I reject it. I think it's heresy. I think it's Christ denial. I think it's dishonorable. If this is the day the Lord has made, if this is our Sabbath, if this is when we come together as a holy congregation in a holy convocation, then there's a whole lot of patterns the Old Testament hands us into the New Testament to make this day special above all days. So if, if the seeker-friendly church, man, they're, they're lowering the standard on absolutely everything. And that includes what 
the high churches would call sacraments. So we started teaching on this, and as we looked at it, we saw that we probably agree solidly with five of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. And I would remind you that the seven sacraments were really decided upon at the Council of Trent, which was an 11-year meeting. You can't even get Christians to get together to meet for 30 minutes of Bible instruction, but the Catholics, answering the Reformation, had an 11-year meeting to try to figure out, what do we believe? And that's a long discussion between theologians and scholars, which we wouldn't agree with everything they decided upon, but at least they were taking their diligence, which is more than can be said for most charismatics. And so we started teaching on the sacraments. What I want to cover this morning is the first sacrament, which we all agree on, which is baptism. But let me give you a brief review of the sacrament, what it means, where it comes from, and a definition for us. Sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentus, as do so many of our words. You can hear it, sacramentus, but that word simply means in the Latin mystery. So when we talk about a sacrament, we're talking about a ritual that symbolizes a mystery. Now, the term mystery is the Greek word mysterion or mysterios, which is where we get our word mystery from, and it means unspoken things. But the word mysterion or mystery is mentioned in the New Testament 27 times. So we know that the gospel is a mystery. Marriage is a mystery. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto, God, unto men, but unto God, for he speaketh mysteries. There's a lot of mysteries. The hope of the resurrection is considered a mystery. There's a lot of mysteries that are wrapped up in the gospel. That just means they're unspoken things that we're still trying to understand. Now, evangelical churches, and again, I was born again a Southern Baptist. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor. Most of my discipleship up until I was 19 was Southern Baptist. So that's my foundation. I came among the charismatics, got spirit-filled in a vineyard church. I spent some time among the covenant denomination. It was like an ostracization on the West Coast. Covenant's like an evangelical Lutheran. Went to a Lutheran kindergarten. So I got a lot of different, no, Episcopal. It was an Episcopal kindergarten. Had friends that were Catholic growing up in Louisiana. So I have a lot of different flavors in me. Spirit-filled a vineyard, trained up at Arema, SMTI, Bible school at Lester Sumrall's, and now I'm back with you, rat scallion. So I'm not really sure what we are anymore except for students of the Word. And I'm okay with that. Even in the evangelical circles, we don't refer to anything in the Scriptures as a mystery anymore. Catholics do use that term, behold the mystery. And I'm not really sure, but my, my inkling at this point is as Westerners, as Americans, we don't like to be unknown or unknowing about anything. So why would we ever use the term mystery? But there are high churches that still acknowledge there's things that are mysteries. I would agree with that because why some of you skip church is a mystery. <laughs> why some of you are born again and still live like dirtbags is a mystery. How you can call yourself a Christian and still have your carnality is a mystery. So we acknowledge mysteries. We just don't want to use the term mystery because it means we don't know something. And if Americans are prideful about anything, it's their knowledge. We know everything and we have the Google. Because what we don't know, we can just turn aside and Google it. So, well, I knew that forever. Yeah, you didn't. Sacraments, therefore, are rituals or rites that reflect some of the New Testament's mysteries. And I even think with evangelicals, you start talking about rituals and they, they freak out because they think it sounds pagan. But a ritual just means a practice. And we don't have a problem with our football rituals or our hockey rituals or whatever our superstitious rituals are. You wear the same socks, that's a ritual. You gotta sit on this couch for the team to win, that's a ritual. Yeah. 
you're superstitious. You spill salt, you throw some over your shoulder, you won't step on a crack. I mean, Americans are just as superstitious as the pagans are. We just wrap it up in whiteism, <laughs> Eurocentricism. A sacrament is a ritual that reflects some of the New Testament's mysteries. A sacrament is a ritual that reflects or symbolizes a spiritual truth. And then the definition we looked at two weeks ago that I think opened our eyes even more and probably whet our appetite to study this more closely was that it's a Catholic definition that a, a sacrament is no mere ritual, but it's a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes. And that's just a fancy way of saying it is a ritual and we're full of them as Christians and Americans. It's a ritual that makes power available. Now, they would use the term grace or they would use the term the Holy Spirit. It's a ritual that administers the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't disagree with that. We just have different verbiage. And again, I'm not trying to make us Catholic, but I'm studying a lot of different parts of Christian history. And there's things we've walked away from and things we've picked up and things they've walked away from. And honestly, we're, our churches have been chop sueyed up because of things we disagreed with and we walked away from. And it, there's um, nothing new under the sun. So we want to get back to some of the things of the Bible. A sacrament makes the symbolized power available to the believer. And I think the greatest sacrament we looked at that we didn't even consider a sacrament will be the seventh one we cover in this series, and that is the sacrament of marriage. And when we understand this definition in light of marriage, that it is a ritual, a sacrament is a ritual that makes power available, that is no more greatly symbolized or demonstrated than in a marriage ceremony. Because in a marriage ceremony, it is a ritual. Unless you go to the justice of the peace, which I think is dishonorable. Now, if you did, no condemnation, but we have a higher standard than going to the J-O-P to say our vows. I think it's dishonorable towards God. I think it's dishonorable towards the institution that is marriage. A J-O-P is where the homosexuals go get married. Not Bible-believing, blood-washed children of God. In the wedding ceremony, you have an officiant, the man of God, who has been authorized through the laying on of hands, which is another sacrament. They call it taking holy orders. We call it ordination in the ministry. And through the power vested in the minister, he pronounces, without that pronunciation, they are not husband and wife. They are not one in the eyes of God. Now think about the power and the authority delegated to a holy man or woman of God. Mostly we see men of God officiate. And we're a little bit progressive in this nation now having post-feminism, you know, no bras cause, and hairy armpits because we're women. Hear us roar. You mean screech, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> Through the power of God invested in that minister, he looks at this guy and this girl who've come together before the house of God, before the congregation of God, before the man of God, in the presence of God and the holy angels and said, we believe we're called to be together forever. And until that minister ordained of God to say nothing of the state, before, until he says, I now pronounce you man and wife, they are not man and wife. And something powerful goes into effect. And now here comes the grace of God upon the man to be a husband. And the grace of God comes upon the woman to be a wife. And now they two are one flesh and one in the eyes of God, all because of a ceremony. So that's a perfect example of this 
Catholic definition that a sacrament is a ritual that actualizes what it symbolizes. It makes power available, but that also means if that ritual doesn't take place, power is hindered. Because you can live together in common law marriage, but you're just a bunch of fornicating dogs. And, of course, the state, the government, recognizes marriage as common law after seven years or eight years or whatever it is, but God still wasn't involved in any of it. So you're, you're devoid of the power and the authorization to be a real husband or a real wife. You're just shacking up filing tax returns together. So let's dial that back then now and talk about baptism. And if we're going to talk about baptism, I want to talk about the biblical precedent for baptism because this is an important doctrine. It's one that's very much debated. In the body of Christ, we debate, do we sprinkle, do we dunk? Does baptism save? Does baptism mean anything? Is it just a dead ritual with tap water? Do we need to be baptized in the creek? Can we do it in a baptismal like we have over here? Does it need to be removing water? Is it sacrilegious to get baptized at the YMCA or public pool? Does it have to be in the wintertime? Uh, there's all these debates because I think people get bored with studying the Bible, so they'd rather fight with each other over it. Certain things are pretty much nailed down in stone uh, in the scriptures. But I want to talk about the trajectory in the scripture of baptism, because it's important to know how the doctrine builds upon itself. One, uh, one theologian, and I think the, it's kind of a held statistic, baptism is such a significant thing that they estimate one-third of humanity has been water baptized. That's how powerful and important it is. That doesn't mean everybody believed what they were doing. It doesn't mean it was significant in everybody's lives, but because of John the Baptist... And this ritual, he, from the scriptures, appears to institute approximately one-third of the world has been water baptized to be made a disciple of Christ, to follow in believer's baptism. But let me just run through a few notes here that I've got. Uh, going back into the Old Testament, we want to look at the background for water baptism because I want to talk about it as a New Testament sacrament, a New Testament mystery. The Levites practiced ceremonial baths as part of their service and sanctification. So it was first initiated for the Levites. It wasn't a full bath, the, the brazen laver, which was the basin of bronze in the tabernacle. It was set there in the tabernacle's courtyard between the altar of sacrifice, so the altar of offering, the brass altar, the brazen altar, and the tabernacle. And before the priests could go into the tabernacle or before they could minister at the brazen altar, they had to wash their hands and feet. So this is the beginnings of ceremonial washings. They had to wash their hands and their feet because the Bible speaks of pure hands and feet that are holy feet and how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the good news. So there's something symbolic about it. And God said, if they don't wash their hands and feet, they'll die. So that's pretty significant. That kind of would seem to indicate this is a ritual that makes power available. Because if you don't do it, you die. So this is a ritual admittedly a ritual that gives them power to live. And that's what God says. If they don't do it, they will die. The obedience made power available to them. Also in the Old Testament, lepers were washed. Once they were cleansed uh, of the leprous issue, they were washed. Uh, blood issues uh, in women and seminal discharges in men or from men were re required washings to enter back into the tabernacle of the congregation. If you were to touch a corpse or anything dead, uh, a human, you were required to wash by the waters of purification. And let me step on the, the kind of um, the hyper-excited temple movement. Everybody's excited about the red heifer 
If you know anything about it, there's all this excitement about the red heifer. The red heifer was simply used to create the waters of purification. This is in the book of Numbers. The red heifer was a, just a red cow, and it was burned at the altar along with hyssop, along with cedar, along with um, uh, red uh, linen twine. And those ashes were then kept in a sacred place. And anytime somebody touched something dead, they had to then to go get some of those ashes, mix it with moving water, and sprinkle it. That's the only use of the red heifer. Everybody seems to be excited because the Temple Institute has found a red cow somewhere. And when you study the doctrine of the red heifer, you think, so what? Because it's not that big of a deal. And I don't mean to poo-poo upon you if you follow these Christian television programs. So what are you going to do now with the red heifer? You're going to make some waters of purification. Is anybody that's been at a funeral going to get sprinkled with it? So they make a big deal out of it. And as I study the scriptures, wrote extensively about it in my book on botany, I really just still think, so what? There's so many other things that still have to be fulfilled. We're excited about a red cow. That aside, I don't mean to bust your pro-Israel thing. I will remind you, uh, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but the most liberal aborting nation on the planet is Israel. Israel aborts more babies per capita at a much later term than us. Nobody seems to kill babies quite like Israel does today. One of my friends got to meet with their basic parliament. The term escapes me. And they said, why are we losing evangelical support? And my friend told him, because you murder more babies than we do. So pray for the peace of Jerusalem because the psalmist said so, but also pray for the repentance of baby murdering. They also are very pro-gay in Israel. He said, uh, my friend also told him, um, he said, your enemies know your law, talking about the Muslim nations around Israel. Your enemies know the law of Moses, and they know that you don't honor it. Your enemies honor their Koran, and they believe their God is for them more than your God is for you because they keep their laws, and you, they know you guys don't. <laughs> That is a pretty bold man to say that to basically a senator in their parliament. It's not a parliament, and the term escapes it. It'll come to me here in 15 minutes, but we'll move on. Naaman the leper was healed by dipping seven times in the River Jordan, which, of course, most folks will agree is a foreshadow of baptism, but it took obedience to make power available to him, and not five times and not six times. He had to fulfillly obey the command. It also begins to build this doctrine of dipping, submerging. The word baptizo, which is a Greek word that we translate into baptism, it means to submerge. It actually is a, a linen term where you would dye linen by submerging it. You don't dye linen by sprinkling it. You dial in and by baptizing it. So baptizo means to submerge. So that ends the debate right there. Do you sprinkle or do you submerge? If you're going to obey the Greek word chosen by the Holy Ghost, you're going to dunk. All right. Now this is where I want to slow down for a second and teach you history that is only alluded to in the Bible. And what I have to say has been thoroughly studied out for 85 or 90 years since the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1943, 1946. They, some of what we know was also written by uh, Josephus, the historian of the Jews and his antiquities of the Jews and the war of the Jews. Josephus was a first century Jewish historian who wrote for the Romans concerning the Jews, but he understood Judaism very well because he was a Jew. 
in the time of Jesus, leading up to the time of Jesus, from the time of the Maccabees and the Maccabean Revolt into the time of the Romans and the time of Christ, that Judaism had three major sects. We're not talking gender, sects. Sects, like sectarian. You had the Sadducees, which the Bible speaks of. You had the Pharisees, which the Bible speaks of. And then you had what were later called the Essenes. Now, the Essenes did not call themselves Essenes. The Essenes were called Essenes by people later. And the word Essene, the etymology is basically doers of the word. It's a pretty good thing to be known by. The Essenes are alluded to by Jesus and by Paul, and you would have to understand their doctrine to know the allusions to it. The Essenes uh, were a sect of, of Judaism. And please, we, when we think about Jesus and the Jews, we kind of think of them as a homogenous group of believers, but they were not, just like the body of Christ is not today. Anytime you have a system of belief, you give it enough time, it will turn sectarian. We'll start to differentiate, and we'll go this way, and we'll go that way, and we'll go this way, and we'll go that way. So the Essenes were no different. Actually, the Essenes departed from the mainstream of uh, pharisaical Judaism, what early, later became rabbinical Judaism, because they felt like the priesthood was compromised. And they felt like the genuine priesthood followed through the line of Zadok and the uh, Zedekites. And so they spun off and they left basically Jerusalem and gave up the temple and gave up Jerusalem because they didn't feel like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing things as they ought to be done about 100 BC. And so they established a community south, or excuse me, exactly due east of Jerusalem. Actually, we have a picture. We want to throw that up and um, we'll be able to see it. One of the critical verses to the Essenes was Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, Behold, a voice crying in the wilderness makes straight paths for his feet. And so here we have basically a map of Israel. You see Jerusalem here on the western side. Here's the Jordan River. And because of a lot of prophecies in the book of Ezekiel, they looked for the Messiah to come from the east. Ironically enough, when Jesus came marching into Jerusalem, he came directly from the east and fulfilled all those prophecies in Ezekiel 43 and 44 and 46. So what the Essenes did about 100 or so BC, they departed the, the Maccabean dynasty, which is just a family that ruled Israel, and they set up in Qumran in a community. That way they could be near the wilderness looking for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. So that's where they set up. You can leave this up the whole time if you want to there, Dylan. Everything they believe was based on the Old Testament. And they begin to develop doctrine as they sought God and waited for the coming of the Lord. Just like we study what was given to us in the New Testament, and we're working out doctrine, looking for the coming of the Lord. We're creating doctrine from the scriptures about the great falling away. We're creating doctrine right now about the rapture because it's given to us in the scripture. The Essenes were no different. They considered, they called themselves the repentant ones of Israel which kind of indicted everybody else. They really felt like they were the true believers who had stayed true to the scripture. But they were also very, very pro-Messianic. They were looking for the Messiah. And they had a lot of fascinating doctrines. One of them is that they believed there were two Messiahs coming. One would be from the tribe of Levi to fulfill Levitical priestly duties in fulfillment of the scriptures that said there shall ever, there'll always be a priest of your lineage. They also believed there would be a Davidic Messiah who would fulfill kingly roles. That later got wrapped into a doctrine called Melchizedek, a priest king. So the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews that talks about a Melchizedek priesthood, that was an Essene doctrine. 
This is pretty trippy stuff because there's nothing new under the sun, and God always has a people looking for him, and they're studying and working out doctrine and studying and working out doctrine. These Essenes practiced daily ritual baths to stay clean because they were really big on the priesthood, and the priests had to stay daily clean, so they felt like they should raise the bar and stay clean themselves. They also, if you were going to join their sect, they required a conversion baptism. You had to demonstrate a faith in their doctrinal statement, which was based on the Torah, and then they required a conversion baptism so that you could say, now I've washed and I've come out of these waters, these living waters, and now I'm one of you. They rejected the Jewish sects that had control over Jerusalem, the Sadducees and Pharisees, believing the former was a corrupted priesthood and the latter were legalistic and were a hindrance. It's believed that they were established by a high priest of the Zadokites in about 100 BC, and they referred to him throughout their teachings that we have record of through the Dead Sea Scrolls because they have a bunch of doctrinal scrolls as the teacher of righteousness. They didn't think he was the Messiah, but he was their leader and their founding leader. He was the teacher of righteousness. They believe that he was possibly the high priest of the Zadokites that was run out. The other interesting thing that is important for us in this study this morning is that the Essenes had basically two groups. You had the celibates who never married because they believed that it, it would hinder them, and then you had those that did marry. And so it is believed by theologians that when Jesus talks about there are some who are made eunuchs, make themselves eunuchs for the gospel's sake, he's referring to the Essenes because that's what they were known for. Even Josephus, the historian, says they don't marry and they don't have children. So these would have been very much who the Lord could have been alluding to when he said there are those who are eunuchs by man's hands because they work in the queen's palace. Then there are those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. That would have been an Essene. Some did marry, so they were two different groups there. The celibates then were, they had, in order to maintain their community numbers, they would adopt special children. They would adopt those who wanted them to raise their kids, and that caused their numbers to maintain in perpetuity, because if you're not reproducing, you don't have kids. So they would go and find children who wanted, whose parents wanted them to be raised up almost as an ascetic, which means a monk, and they said, we want you to raise our children, much like Hannah gave her baby to the priesthood to be raised up in the temple around Eli, uh, Samuel. They set up their society east of Jerusalem to wait for the literal coming of the Lord from the east. Now, here's where it gets very fascinating. So here we have celibates who are ascetics or monks that live out in the desert. And we know that they, this is also the only group of the three Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene, only group of the three that still believed in prophets and raised them up. So based on this and a bunch of other evidence that don't, doesn't fit what we're discussing this morning, there is a strong, strong argument among theologians and historians that John the Baptist was an Essene. Now, you don't have to believe it. The Bible doesn't tell us he's an Essene, but the Essene is a term used later by historians to identify these people. But Paul was a Pharisee, and we don't think anything of that. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and we don't think anything of that. And we know Pharisees and Sadducees com converted to Christianity. We don't think anything of that. So the reason they believe that John the Baptist was more than probable, probably an Essene, and there are theological arguments against it, but none of them hold any water to me, honestly, 
is that the Essenes practiced celibacy and so they had to adopt orphans or children of elderly Jews to raise in order to maintain their numbers. And Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, were very old. And they were priests, which was very important to the Essenes. Zechariah was a, a highly respected priest, and we know this because he was appointed to burn incense when the angel spoke to him. This would have given him more merit in the eyes of the Essenes. Uh, it also helps us to explain how the Bible says in Luke 1, verse 80, that John the Baptist grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts. That's the wilderness. That's where the Essenes lived. How does a child make it on his own in the desert? Like, was he like five years old? And they just say, go home, go, don't come back to the street lights, come on. <laughs> and he was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. And that is Qumran. This is the desert. You see where the mountain drops off there? Can you see that topographic contour? And then from there, it's all desert till you get to the Jordan. And that becomes the Transjordan. And that's called the desert, the wilderness beyond Jordan. So he's out there. Well, if his, kid, if his parents are priests... Why is he out in the wilderness? This fits that. It helps fit the narrative. When we are introduced to John the Baptist, he is an ascetic. That means he lives in the wilderness. And he's a celibate. He doesn't have a wife or kids. And he eats locusts and wild honey, which is part of the Qumran's uh, covenant, that if you ever leave them, you've sworn an oath that you'll no longer eat food prepared by man. That's one of the punishments for leaving or being kicked out. They believe he was kicked out. The argument is he was kicked out of the Essenes because he adopted the primary Essene verse, which is Isaiah 40, verse 3, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his coming. Uh, because he, he said, uh, Isaiah 40 goes on. To, let's just read it. Go to Isaiah 40. We should read a verse. I don't want to butcher it. Isaiah 40, verse 3. This is a key Essene doctrine, a key Essene verse. We know it from the Dead Sea Scrolls. We know it from history. This is one of their important verses, just like if we were word of faith, we'd say Mark 11, 23 and 24. That's a key verse for the word of faith, just like John 3, 16 is a key verse for the Baptists. Verse 3 says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our Lord. That defined the Essenes. That's why they moved to Qumran. That's why they had this community out there. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now it is believed that John the Baptist, if he wasn't as seen, would have been kicked out because his preaching is all flesh, which the Hebrew is Gentiles, all people. And the Essenes rejected the Gentiles because they were still very Jewish. So when John the Baptist begins to promote, or in sometime in his development, begins to promote salvation for Jew and Gentile, that could have possibly led to his excommunication. But having taken an oath, one of the Qumran doctrines is, if we expel you, if you ever leave us, your covenant is you'll never eat food prepared by man again. Which explains why the Bible says he ate locusts and honey. Locusts are the insects, which are still eaten today all over the world and honey. Both of those are not prepared by men, and you can subsist off of both of them. So it's interesting that the New Testament tells us a lot of this stuff as if, if you knew what you were looking for, it would tell you all you needed to know. We look at it like, well, that's weird. Like, who abandons a five-year-old in the desert? How does he grow in the spirit? 
this is really weird. But now the other thing is that this is why we have to do more than just my utmost for his highest five-minute daily devotional every day, because otherwise you're going to be a shallow Instagram Christian. And Christians who only post on Instagram their walk with God don't have a walk with God. There's still more. John the Baptist being raised by the Essenes as a part of their adopted culture would also help us explain why Jesus and John don't recognize each other, though they are cousins. I've always wondered that myself. Like, how do you not know each other? You're cousins. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. They, they knew each other. How all of a sudden does Jesus come to the baptism of John and they don't even know who they are? Well, if John had been adopted by the Essenes and raised his whole life till about 30, that would explain why he's never seen his cousin Jesus, nor would he recognize him. It isn't just because the beard is a good disguise technique. <laughs> The Bible tells us that John came from the direction of the Qumran community in the desert when he began baptizing. The Bible says that John, when he set up shop to baptize, it says that he baptized at Bethany beyond Jordan. Bethany beyond Jordan is about right here. John's gospel calls it Bethabara, but it's Bethany, house of House of the Crossing is Bethabara. And the reason it's Bethabara, the house of the crossing, or Bethany, is because all the Jews traveling down from Galilee would cross over the Jordan to avoid Samaria, and then to go to Jerusalem, they'd cross over back there at Bethany or Bethabara to avoid the Samaritans. So the Bible tells us that when Jesus came to be baptized, he came down from Galilee and would have crossed where everybody else was crossing at Bethany beyond Jordan to be baptized. Let's go to, uh, let's see here. Let's go to the Gospels. Let me read you a passage in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 3. We're talking about the sacrament of baptism. Now, remind, keep in mind, this is all a little subject. I won't say subjective. It's, it's, uh, it's evidence we're looking at. The Bible doesn't declare clearly that Paul or that John was an Essene, but everything he's doing, everything he's teaching is very Essenic in nature. And the Essenes produced the prophets. The Essenes maintained celibacy. They maintained the scriptures. They rejected the Pharisees as Jesus did. They rejected the Sadducees as Jesus did. They were the only ones patiently anticipating a Messiah and lived accordingly. Here in Luke's gospel, verse 2, Ananias and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. So he is out in the wilderness, and the word of God comes unto him and activates John the Baptist's ministry. Now you keep in mind he's if he we're going to assume he was raised Essene or Cynic, so he has a strong doctrine of baptism. There's a baptism for conversion and there's daily purification baptisms to stay clean before his God. He's a celibate, he's a monastic or an ascetic living out in the desert place by himself and God activates him through the word of the Lord, verse 3, and he came into all the country uh, about Jordan preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That is an Essene doctrine. To be baptized for the remission of sins, to be baptized in the waters of purification. Let me read you a quote from the Qumranic doctrine. Um, there are, these aren't scripture, these are just scrolls that record their doctrine and their statement of beliefs. Uh, they are 2,000 years old. That's why they say the Dead Sea Scrolls and their discovery is one of the greatest discoveries in archeological history. Also, it's worth studying. We could do several nights of teaching on it. I don't know it well enough to take that many nights. But 
when they found the scrolls in the caves of Qumran uh, by a Bedouin who stumbled in the caves, uh, they recognized that they are from history and they have multiple copies of Isaiah and most of the prophets and Amos and some of the books that are in the Apocrypha that we don't have and then all these doctrinal scrolls and what they found is that there is little to no error between first century scrolls of Isaiah and the most recent ones we'd had up until that point which were like eight nine hundred AD that gave great encouragement that these scriptures that we study have not changed like your moron cousin tells you they have <laughs> or your Instagram page or whatever you listen to. So here's a quote from the Qumran doctrine. He said, this is talking about their doctrine of baptism for remission of sins. Now think about this. This isn't the Bible. This is Jews seeking God, waiting for the Messiah. This is the doctrinal conclusion they've come to in trying to find salvation through a coming Messiah. Through an upright and humble attitude, a man's sin may be covered. And by humbling himself before all of God's laws, his flesh shall be made clean. Only thus, with his heart humble and obedience, can he really receive the purifying waters and be purged by the cleansing flow. Now that is Essene doctrine before the time of Christ. That feeds their doctrine of baptism because we're trying to figure out where does baptism come from, especially for the remission of sins. It was Essene in nature. This is John's discipleship. This is his upbringing. He's called to prepare the way because Isaiah 40 verse 3 is an Essene theme verse. John is apparently raised that way and that when God calls him to prepare the way of the Messiah, he goes back to all of his training. Now you think about it, if, if all that is accurate, as far as him being raised by the Essenes, his birth was foretold by the angel, he was born the forerunner of Christ, the sovereign hand of God would have been made, would made sure he wasn't raised a Pharisee, because that would have hindered it, not raised a Sadducee, not even raised a priest, raised by those who God had waiting for the coming of the Messiah. So all this doctrine is being put into him because just like you and I are working out doctrine without foundational apostles writing scriptures, we don't write scriptures anymore. We base new doctrine that we're building on the scriptures already given to us. Same with the Essenes. They're building messianic anticipation on the Old Testament. And they seem to be the most cutting edge because they're the ones that a lot of our New Testament sounds just like. There's a whole other argument about how much the Gospel of John sounds just like Essene doctrine, but if you read 1 John or John chapter 1 closely, you realize that John the Revelator, John the Apostle, was a disciple of John the Baptist. We'll look at that here in a moment. It's pretty apparent. It's like, how do we not see that? But if John the Baptist was an Essene and his disciples would have been very Essenic in their doctrine as well. All right, you guys are listening. This is a lot to cover this morning because we still haven't even touched the sacrament yet. But I don't just want to say, let's get dunked. And to God be the glory. I want to know. I'm a, I'm a scientist. I want to know why we do this. Thankfully, we have explanations. And he came into all the country round about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And it is as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That was the Essenes core verse. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And that's why they believe he was possibly kicked out, because he preached all flesh, not just the Jews. All flesh, all believers, all people shall see the salvation of God. Jews didn't believe that the Gentiles could be saved, though their prophets prophesied the glory of the Gentiles, or the Gentiles should be drawn to your glory. 
This was a hang-up for a lot of people. Remember, Paul tried to preach it until they got to the part in the sermon about the Gentiles. You shall be a testimony of the Gentiles, and then they wanted to stone them. They had a hang-up on this. That included the Essenes. Then said he to the multitudes that came forth to be baptized of him, there at Bethany, where basically that arrow points at, it says Jordan River. That's the area. Why did he set up shop there? That's where everybody from the north was crossing into Jerusalem. Anybody from outside of Jerusalem would cross there. It's the highway. It's the major transaction. It's Jews and Gentiles. Anybody coming down from the Sea of Galilee, which is just to the north, which included Decapolis, the ten regions of the Greeks, which would have had a lot of Roman centurions, they all would have passed through there. If you study his sermons there, he preaches things that are very Essenic. Uh, if you have two coats, give one away. Remember that? That's an Essene doctrine. They only possessed one coat. If he said, take, uh, don't bribe, they were, they, uh, the Essenes were, had a community standard. They shared all things in common, which sounds just like Acts chapter 2. They had all things in common. They was a shared community. So you see the early church we won't say inheriting it, but man, it just looks like it fits. They're living like the Essenes did, sharing things, not being greedy, having all things in common, distributing for the poor and those who lacked. He said to the multitudes that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers. Now, what's interesting is this had to be a known practice because all of a sudden you have some dude in the wilderness with a beard dressed in a hairy coat and a leather belt, which is reminiscent of Elisha, who wore a hairy coat. And he's baptizing and preaching where uh, Joshua led Israel over to fight Jericho. He's preaching right where Elijah was caught up in the whirlwind. It's the same place. All this is very prophetic and reminiscent. The baptismal practice had to be very common. Otherwise, why would all of Israel line up to participate? Like You're not just inventing some new ritual, and everybody's going to get in on it. This is something they knew the Essenes practiced, and it's also believed they were Essenes in every community around Israel as kind of like evangelists. Anyway, he, he said to the multitude, O generation of vipers, who's warned you to flee from the wrath to come? One of the doctrines of the Essenes was that God would come and judge his enemies with fire and fill his believers with the Holy Spirit. That's an Essene doctrine as recorded in the Qumran scrolls. Bring forth, therefore, fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire. That's the words of Isaiah and Ezekiel. They talked about cutting down wicked plants. And the people asked him, saying, what shall we do then? Now think about this. He has a movement going, and it's not a feel-good movement. It's definitely not seeker-friendly. He's an ascetic. He's not married. He's a celibate. He's dressed in uncomfortable clothing. He is there at the busiest crossroads in Israel, especially for the Jews, but also for the Romans and the centurions. And he is not winning friends by polite, sweet, telling them how to have their best day ever. They, sh they show up, and his sermon appears to be the same thing every day. Who's warned you to flee? Who told you to come to me? God has an ax. He's going to cut you down and send you to hell. Are you sure you want this? Are you sure you're prepared to go on these waters? Because when you come up, God's going to judge you. You know why we don't build churches that way in America today? Because Americans are allergic to truth. They're allergic to the gospel. They're allergic to a hard preacher. They're allergic to confrontation. They're allergic to being told they're fools, morons, hypocrites, and hirelings. 
But John the Baptist said, I don't have a problem with any of it. I'm called of God and you're going to hell. And don't you dare say my daddy went to church. Don't you dare say we have Abraham as our father. He says, God will raise up rocks. That's also Old Testament because anytime God said, Moses, step aside, I'll wipe these people out. I'll make me some new ones. It's a very reminiscent language of all the Old Testament prophets, which is why they would ask him, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? No, no, and no. Who are you? I'm the voice crying in the wilderness. He knew exactly who he was. What shall we do? Verse 11, he answered and said to them, he that has two coats, let him impart to him that has none. That is an Essene doctrine. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. That's an Essene doctrine to share what you have with the community. Then came also unto them publicans to be baptized and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed unto you. And the soldiers, that's the Romans, likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Get out of my land because you're evil oppressors and it's not right. These are Roman soldiers. He did not overthrow a social movement. He did not begin a social movement. That's not his job. His job is to prepare the way for Jesus. He told the soldiers, do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all the men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not, John answered, saying unto them, I indeed baptize you with water, because that's what Essenes do. But one mightier than I comes, the latch of whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloose, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And that is another Essene doctrine. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And I like this. We have two agricultural, two botanical allegories. Both say you're going to burn in hell. Going to cut you down and burn you, or I'm going to sift you and burn you. Either way, you better make sure you're right with God, because if not, you're going to burn. And this is the lovely message of baptism. And I'm all for the celebrations we have with it, but what we really have to recognize is the, the foundation of water baptism, which is it is a time to prove we have repented. It's a time to prove we are serious about our God. John's baptism was in current practice with the Essenes of his day. But to it, he tied the new message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because he had come to lay the groundwork for Jesus. Thus, his baptism is called the baptism of repentance, distinguishing it from purification washings. Matthew chapter three. So we're talking about a sacrament being a ritual that makes power available because I'll be honest with you. I was raised Southern Baptist. I got Born again at the age of seven, I got water baptized that, uh, that fall. I, I, my birthday's in late summer. So I got born again in the summer when I was seven. So right after I turned eight, I got water baptized. And you don't really know too much what you're doing as a kid. So then when I rededicated my life at 19, I got re-water baptized in this church when I was in college. And living in this region, debating the Church of Christ regularly, you start to take on a jaded view of baptism because they're so hardcore that it gets you into heaven when the argument really is, it's just tap water or crick water. How does that save your soul? So I have to admit, even in my heart, I've many times kind of vacillated into the more flippant view of water baptism. We make the argument, what about the thief on the cross? He didn't get water baptized. To which the counter argument is he went to paradise, not heaven, and the two are different before the resurrection of Christ. That's another theological debate altogether. But when you start to settle upon this, all right, does the ritual of water baptism really make power available? 
That's something we need to pause and think about because if it's true, we should take it a lot more serious as a congregation when we watch people get water baptized. We should communicate that to the candidates for water baptism before it happens so they can have a higher expectation even as another sacrament, which is the laying on of the hands of the sick, if we tell them we're going to lay hands on you and the power of God's going to come upon you, their faith can be higher to expect that power to be demonstrated. If we can teach from the scripture that there is a power made available with the act of water baptism, then maybe the candidate being water baptized following a believer's baptism can see something greater in their life than just going through the motions. Now, all sacrilegious aside, I did... <laughs> sacrilegiously get water baptized in Irish Catholic a few years ago. We were in St. Patrick's Catholic Cathedral in Armagh, Ireland with my friend, Pastor Gary Brown, who was Irish. And we went and sat in this beautiful uh, cathedral that took 80 years or so to build. Kind of came in the back. Mass was going on. And so we were quietly respecting Mass. Probably seats a thousand people. There were maybe 50 in there for morning Mass. Beautiful service. The, the priest... His homily was on the resurrection of the dead. It was watertight and excellent. Nobody was moved by it but us because we could hear what he was saying. But before we left, we went over to the baptismal font carved out of solid stone, and it just looks like a water fountain, to be honest with you. It's got holy water in it. And Gary Brown says, you want to be baptized in Irish Catholic? I said, let's do it. So he said, put your head down. So I put my head down, and he just, this is how the Catholics do it. They just sprinkle it. And he said, all right, now you're an Irish Catholic. That aside, and like if I knew today, knew then what I knew today, I probably wouldn't be that sacrilegious with it. We were goofing off as a bunch of dumb preachers. <laughs> I have the picture on my phone still. If we can be serious about some of this stuff, God might show up more. This again, now my sins aside, this is why the seeker-friendly movement is, is mocking God. Because they don't teach the people that God is God and the things of God are to be revered and respected. So we're proving the point. Does a sacrament make the power of God available? Well, let's see. Matthew 3, verse 13, then cometh Jesus from Galilee. So that's to the north on this map. There's the blue line. That's the Jordan. Galilee's the, the lake to the north. And he would have come down on the east side to avoid the Samaritans because that's how everybody traveled. And then when he got down to where the arrow says Jordan River, there it was Bethany beyond Jordan or Bethabara. He would have crossed, and that's where John had set up his ministry. Jesus cometh from Galilee unto Jordan, unto John, to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee. Comest thou to me? Like, I need to be baptized of you. Why does he say that? Because he says, I could see God say, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. So as he sees him coming, the other Gospels tell us, John the Baptist hears a word of knowledge. And the Holy Spirit says the Lamb of God. So now he knows who he's about to baptize. This is the Messiah. I'm sure he would have been wondering for weeks or months, when's he coming? I'm the one preparing the way. When's he coming? I'm preparing the way. When's he coming? And one day he looks up and here he comes. So that's why he says, I need to be baptized of you. You're the Lamb of God that taketh away sins. And you've come to me. And Jesus saying, answering said unto him, suffer it to be so now for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straight away out of the water, and lo, nothing significant or spiritual happened. The heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So does baptism make power available? 
Well, had he been baptized, would the heavens have been opened? No. Had he not been baptized, would the Holy Spirit have descended upon him to anoint him to become the Christ? Up until this point, he was not anointed. He was not the Christ. That becomes a doctrinal dispute for many because they want to think baby Jesus did miracles. There's no miracles until Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. This fulfills the Old Testament pattern of prophets anointing kings, priests, and other prophets for their role. John is a prophet. Jesus is the king and the priest and the prophet. He has to be anointed. This is fulfilling Old Testament typology. He does it with water baptism. And the second he comes up out of the water, heaven is opened. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and now demons begin to recognize him. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Have you come to torment us before the time? That never happened before this. Then he hears God speak, the eternal one, the father, behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So we ask the question again, does water baptism make power available? If it makes power available for the son of God, I think, should we dunk you in a ritual called water baptism? There might be something available to you you wouldn't get otherwise. And I hope for us living in Church of Christ territory, we might have a little more respect for water baptism than just some ritual we do because, you know, grandma wants me to do it. All right. I think that's a pretty powerful argument for why we do it. At some point, things transition away because not long after this, John the Baptist is imprisoned and then beheaded. And actually, I told you we'd see where John the Baptist had a disciple named John the Revelator. So go with me to John's gospel. John chapter one, let's look real quick. And then we're going to look at a few New Testament scriptures on water baptism. I want to say very firmly, I do not believe water baptism saves you. The Catholics believe that. Uh, so do the Church of Christ. The Catholics do believe in infant baptism, and let me explain that, because I've been talking to Catholics lately, lately, and I actually, one of my Catholic friends just got me the Catholic Catechism, which is about 800 pages long, and it's 400 years of church doctrine. And uh, you flip through it, it's book, chapter, verse, book, chapter, verse, book, chapter, verse. They just come to a different conclusion than we do. But the reason the Catholics, my understanding is, the reason they do infant baptism is because the Bible says you and your household must be baptized. So would a household not include infants? Of course. But to that they add a, um, confirmation. And confirmation is when they come of age. I asked my Catholic friend Thursday, so what's that? He said, about 12 or 13. I went, sounds familiar. He says, so what's confirmation? He said, that's when you decide that you are committed to the Catholic church. This is your church. This God is your God, and you're going to serve Jesus. That's confirmation. I thought, well, I don't disagree with that. I'm not sure I agree with the order of it all, but I can't, exp I can't debate why they believe in the order of it. Because if Peter, their first pope, tells the house of Cornelius, you and your whole household must be baptized. If they tell that on the day of Pentecost to everybody, you and your household must be baptized, that's going to include infants. So you baptize them, and then as they're brought up at 12 or 13, which is also the Jewish age of accountability, they make the decision for themselves to follow Jesus. That aside, John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I've said after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not. That's also the Essene doctrine of adoption, and John the, Revel, uh, John the Baptist being raised by the Essenes would explain why he could say, I knew him not. 
because they were brought up in different parts of Israel, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, am I coming? I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walketh, he saith to his disciples, it's implied, behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So here we have John the Baptist, two disciples of his. He sees Jesus the next day and says, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And those two disciples follow Jesus. So now they leave John and move to Jesus. So who are these two disciples? Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, what seek ye? They say unto him, Rabbi, that is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? And he said unto them, come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two which heard John speak that day and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother, he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So then the question is, who's the first disciple? And the implication is John, because he's the author and he always omits himself in the entire narrative. And so this is where you see John and Andrew were two disciples first with, G with John, and then they transferred over to Jesus. And then there's a whole line of arguments that talks about how much John's gospel quotes Essene doctrine as it relates to Christ. Because if John the Baptist was an Essene and John the Revelator was a disciple of John the Baptist, he would have picked up Essenic doctrine. If you can follow all that, you're doing really good. But you know what? I want to tell you how to have your best Thursday ever. Because <laughs> that just feels, you know, you're important. And it's important you have a good day every day. Just feel good. Just love yourself. Look in the mirror and say, gosh, darn it, I'm worth it. <laughs> or we can magnify Jesus. All right. <laughs> Real quick, Mark 16, because I've really got to start wrapping this up because we've not even touched on New Testament doctrine yet or New Testament water baptism. Sacraments are rituals that make the power of God available. They actualize what they symbolize. That is to say the power of God is made manifest in water baptism. What does water baptism symbolize? We know resurrection from the dead. Here in Mark chapter 16, the gospels tell us, go ye in all the world, verse 15, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I do not believe water baptism saves you from damnation. Here it says, if you believeth not, you are damned. Not if you are water baptized, not are you damned. It still makes power available, and we should still be water baptized. Jump with me now to Acts chapter 2. Actually, and you, you know uh, Matthew, uh, Mark's, Matthew's gospel, all power is given unto me. Uh, now go ye therefore, teaching all nations, baptizing them. So there's power to go, power to teach, power to baptize. That is another verse that confirms that there is power made available in water baptism because if authority has been given to Jesus, the first thing he authorizes his disciples, and that's us to do, is to go. We're authorized and empowered to go. We're authorized and empowered to teach and make disciples, and we're authorized and empowered to baptize. There is power made available when you teach and preach the word. If the word is not taught or preached, there's no power made available. And it also then follows through the logic that there's power to baptize. If we don't baptize, there's no power. Acts chapter 2, first sermon, verse 37. 
Now, when they heard this, that is the crowd assembled at the upper room on the day of Pentecost, they were pricked in their heart and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren. Now, at first they thought they were morons. Now they're claiming them as men and brethren. What shall we do? Because they were pricked in their hearts. Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Up until this point, there's been no believer's baptism. But there has been a steady doctrine of baptism. And it's a purification ritual. It's a symbolic ritual, and it's making power available. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Here's where the Catholics teach that baptism imparts the Holy Ghost. We don't teach that. This, we understand, is a subsequent baptism. Repent, that's being born again. Be baptized, that's water baptism. Receive the Holy Ghost, that's the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We have three clear baptisms spelled out for the believer in the New Testament. Baptism into the body of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Baptism in water, here, Matthew 16, Mark 16, Matthew 28, Acts 2, Romans 6. And then you have baptism in the Holy Ghost in fire, as is evident in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2. And then John's preaching where he says, there's a man coming after me whose shoes I'm not worthy to unlatch it. He'll baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fire. Three baptisms, but we're talking about water baptism. Now, I love what my pastor says, Dr. Barkley, that we are baptized for the remission of sins, not the permission to sin. So there is a cleansing purge that washes, but we should see what the word remission means here in the Greek. I have a screenshot of it. Remission here means to release from bondage. So that would imply that water baptism has a power to release you from the bondage of sin. This is not to say I want us to start firing up the baptismal every time you're struggling with lust. Unless it's an ice cold bath and we hold you down till you promise to quit looking at porn. There's other tools in the kingdom to beat lust. Cold shower is helpful if you have that issue. Remission in the Greek also means forgiveness or pardon of sins letting them go as if they had never been committed. But the question is, is baptism the only thing that remits sins? And to that, we have to be careful. Acts chapter 10, and I'll quote it to you because we're running out of time. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, Peter, again preaching, to him give all the prophets witness, that is to Jesus, Acts 10, 43, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. There's no mention of baptism there. That through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. There's no preaching of baptism outside of John's baptism in Peter's sermon. And I almost wonder if it's that Peter doesn't believe they should baptize Gentiles. But when the Holy Ghost interrupts Peter's sermon and they all speak with other tongues, it's confirmation to Peter that they have been saved, they've been filled with the Holy Ghost, and that's why Peter says, Can any forbid water now that these should not, receive, should not be baptized which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So in Acts 10, 44 through 48, you see salvation, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and water baptism, three separate events, all three considered baptisms, but taking place out of order as they had been demonstrated prior in the book of Acts. When we get born again, we're baptized into the body of Christ. It is a spiritual baptism. The Holy Spirit takes us according to the teaching of Paul and puts us into the body of Christ and we're made to partake of that same spirit. Then we typically teach people to be water baptized, and they are. 
And that is symbolic of what just happened in the Spirit. But we're also seeing there's power made available. And it's important. We fall in the believer's baptism, and it washes us and cleanses us. And many folks have a powerful supernatural testimony of water baptism. And then we have the third baptism, which is the Holy Ghost, where you're baptized with the Holy Ghost in fire. I don't know why you'd want to limp through life with only two out of the three baptisms. But Peter says that it's only belief in his name required for the full remission of sins. So we show you that so that we don't leave here today thinking I have to be water baptized to have my sins remitted. Now, one last verse, because you guys are listening so well, and we need to wrap this thing up. It's a lot to cover. Acts chapter 8, real quick. Acts chapter 8, does water baptism make power available? Maybe we'll hit Romans 6 real quick. I think we have to hit Romans 6 real quick, too. Acts 8. Here's the Ethiopian eunuch. He's getting a very long Bible story. I'm sure he, after at some point, you know, he was like some of us. like, I should not have picked up this hitchhiker. should not have picked up Philip. I just asked him about this one verse, and here we are nine chapters later. Man, this guy's a talker. I sit by these people on airplanes from time to time. <laughs> but something happens. Verse 36, and as they went on their way, they came into a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? This also informs us that the gospel message includes the importance of baptism. Because how in the world else do you go from Isaiah the prophet and now the Ethiopians asking to be baptized? Except that the gospel involves this measure, this act called water baptism. So much that this Ethiopian's faith is so stirred he interrupts his discipler, the Philip the Evangelist, and says, hey, look, here's water. It's a massive caravan of chariots going back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia to Queen Candace. And he says, whoa, 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 here's water. I believe. Can I be baptized? And Philip said, if you believeth with all your heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All right. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch. All right, well, if you just have to sprinkle, let's stand on the banks. They both go down into the water. And he baptized, baptizo, to submerge him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. That would sound like power made available at this water baptism. I'm like, you disappear? That would be trippy that if I'm doing baptism next time and we put one of you down and you, you come up and then I'm gone. Where did pastor go? Azotus. Where is that? 30 miles away. That's what we call translation when you're translated. Called away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Probably because he didn't have to listen to that guy get gab at him for the night. <laughs> I think we stopped just to get that guy off the carrot. No, it's not true. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So let's look at Romans 6, last three verses, because we've got to talk real quick about what this symbolizes. And does it, we were, we've already confirmed it's made power available. Hopefully we can take baptism a little bit more serious. What does that power want to do? I don't know. Cleanse us for sure. Cast devils out of people. I've heard Baptists share those testimonies. Miss... Uh, uh, one of our ladies, uh, she saw the water turn jet black when she was baptized in the baptismal 30 years ago. There's powerful testimonies. If you ever saw videos from the um, Brownsville revival, people would go in the water, come up flopping like fish, screaming and shaking under the power of God. That'll wig out a church of Christ. 
You can't make that stuff up. Romans 6, real quick, verse 3. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, not water, but into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, that is, submerged into the body of Christ. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so also should we walk in the newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin should be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Water baptism symbolizes the power of death over sin. And I believe it makes power available to master sin. Where We are baptized for the remission of sins, not the permission to sin. So this is just the first of seven sacraments we want to study and look at in new light. And I'm hoping that it will cause us to appreciate and revere the things of the scriptures much more closely. I totally reject everything that is seeker-friendly because it's a shallow, watered-down, dumbed-down insult to my God, his holy scripture, and the prices that true ministers and Christians have paid for 2,000 years. Why would you turn the church into a seeker-friendly self-help center with a hot coffee bar and disco lights? How calloused and cheap is that when we're dealing with the risen God who makes power available? I'm hoping that this teaching over the next few weeks will cause us to revere the sacraments, the rituals, in a better way that we would reverence God and see his power come in a mightier fashion. Anything we can do to get more power in our kingdom, in our church, in our families, I think we should do it. All right, you learned a lot this morning. You did very well. I know it was a little sleepy and dozy at times, but there's no way to church this up or I can't do a t-shirt cannon and shoot this at you. We're not going to bring out, you know, the girls in the tight clothing with the disco balls and do all that. No, there's no way to teach it, but just to teach it. So if you fell asleep, go back and restream it. Stay awake. I don't know what to do. Also, by the way, most churches teach 30 minutes a day. I wouldn't even gotten to the first page of notes on 30 minutes. And we got too much to teach to make this one lesson last eight weeks. So again, hopefully you learned something this morning and you're like, there's more to this Bible. There's more to this Bible. TBN spent 30 years lying to me. There's more to this Bible. There's more to the Bible. There's more to the Bible than the seeker-friendly, skinny-jean moron can say. There's more to this Bible. Amen?